This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself? 30 pounds in just 18 weeks. Jenny Craig totally worked. I love to eat, but overeating made it impossible to lose weight. My body wants bread, and I'm going to give my body what it wants. <laughs> so I naturally. Medical studies prove that overeating is the number one reason for weight gain. If you eat, you'll lose weight. You'll lose weight. A podcast that throws a comedy eye over our societal obsession of diets. Now, a little disclaimer, we are not health experts, but we are fad diet connoisseurs. I'm your host, comedian Grace Mulvey. And I'm your co-host, Connor Dowling. Welcome to Fad Camp. Hello and welcome to Fad Camp. This week's episode is very special. Uh, first of all, you're stuck with me, Grace. Connor is not here with us today, but what's amazing is we have such an amazing person we're going to be interviewing that you're not even going to notice Con- Connor's here. I mean, who does? Come on, it's fine. I know you all listen for me. But uh, by way of welcoming our guest today and introducing her to our Fad Camp listeners who may not know her, I'm going to read out how our guest describes herself online. Reagan Chastain is a speaker, writer, dancer, marathoner, ACE certified health coach, functional fitness specialist, at the moment as well, um, I read online that she might be uh, training for the Iron Distance Triathlon. <laughs> and it's, I'm an amazing, funny, fat person who is part of the Fatch Comedy, a fat sketch comedy show. Her honest and often hilarious takes on diet culture and fat phobia have earned her legions of fans online. She writes and speaks full time about self-esteem, body image and health, all things we love here at Fat Camp. Uh, Reagan is also an, uh, the author of the blog Dances with Fat and her writing has been published on you know little known sites such as the Huffington Post. I uh, don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, she's also been on guests on multiple programmes including the BBC and NBC News. Reagan, welcome to Fat Camp. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you. Oh, I'm delighted. Um, first of all, the first thing I just want to say to you is how dare you be so accomplished? <laughs> Like, I read, I when I was writing up that intro today, I was literally like, I feel like I have achieved nothing in my life. Um, okay, well, first of all, Reagan, right, when we have any any guests on Fad Camp, uh, we like to, you know, kind of ease our guests into talking about diets and diet culture by letting our guests know the diets, you know, we we have fallen prey to in the past. So, just for yourself to know, right, I have been a weight, on the Weight Watchers wagon. I attempted a 30-day juice cleanse, which, honest God, left me so translucent. I looked and felt like a jellyfish. And <laughs> I once spent over €300 Euro on a hypnotic gastric band, can you believe? So my first question for you, Reagan, right, is what diets have you partaken in in the past? Oh, all the diets. I did... Um... Uh, I did Advocare. I did Weight Watchers for sure several yeah. times. Um, I was in Overeaters Anonymous for a hot minute. Um, and then I was in a, a medically, like a medical weight loss program. And that's what actually ended up getting me out of dieting because it was so terrible. But yeah, I spent uh, years, years on the diet roller coaster. Right. And sorry, the me- what exactly was the, the medical 
weight loss diet that really kind of urged you into the anti-diet field? So it wasn't like a commercial program. It was like a, I think now it's become maybe like similar to like Metafast, um, where you're eating very small amounts of food and a lot of like shakes and bars and stuff during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the co- the type that like they're like this is this tastes like chocolate and you're no you're like no it tastes like dirt. Um, okay. Uh, even worse, they were like you can use the same packet you could make a shake or soup or a pancake and like the fact that that wasn't enough oh. to make me go I have no I'm not doing this sort of explains my psyche about it at the time. Whenever someone hands you a bag of dust and goes this should be a meal <laughs> just run run the other way. Um, well, Far I'm sorry. Fast. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. That that you went through all of those diets. But I suppose if you could, you know, give us a bit of background about what your journey, I suppose, has been to being an anti-diet and health at every size advocate. Sure. So uh, it started actually, I was on that program and I was, you know, eating very small amounts and I wasn't allowed to exercise, which should have been like, well, oh, that's not right. But I wasn't, you know, clocking into that, but I was gaining weight. Right. I, wow. and so I went in and I was like, you know what? I quit. And they said, oh, you can't quit. And I was like, no, no, I'm pretty sure I can. And so they put me in this little room with a poster about not quitting. It was like the cat hanging on a rope that says, hang in there, baby, right? Literally. Okay, so they actually, this is like Scientology stuff. They were like, no, you're not allowed to leave. <laughs> yeah. And can I ask, where exactly kind of was this? Is this in Los Angeles where you're from? And, and what, what what year was did this happen? I live uh, in Los Angeles now, but it was in Austin, Texas. And I am absolutely horrible with time, but it was in like the early to mid 2000s. Right, yeah. So like recent. Like not like, yeah. you know, in the very distant past. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, not that recent. I keep like, because it's 2021 now. So it's probably like 15 <laughs> oh, yeah. years ago. Yeah. I like to think I'm younger than I am. Amesies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I almost hate to point it out. But yeah. And so like this lady comes in with a binder and it had just sort of fat women being fat in it. And she's flipping through these like pictures. Kind of pictures. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, you know, maybe you don't know it, but this is what you look like. And these women are going to die alone on the couch eating bonbons. And is that what you want? And aren't you tired of hating your body? Oh my gosh. I know, right? I tell this story so much now that I forget that it's like a really traumatic thing for somebody to do and like wildly inappropriate. But just for a quick background of it, how long had you been on this program? And like, um, obviously you had paid to be on it as well. I had paid to be on it at that point. I had been on it for several months. I had followed the program to a T and I had the experience that almost everybody has. I lost a little weight in the beginning. Yeah. And then even though I was following the program, I started gaining it back. And I and then I had the experience of them being like, well, maybe you're doing it wrong. And I'm like, oh, really? Because like, yeah. I can measure a quarter cup of rice as good as anybody, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, but like the cool things that happened in that moment were that one, I realized I didn't hate those women's bodies. Oh, Like I had no problem with them. And so it wasn't certainly the end of the journey, but it was the beginning where I was like, well, if I don't, if I look like them and I don't hate their bodies, like why am I so hard on myself? I grew up rurally on cattle ranches. So I didn't know what a bomb bomb was. So that went right (laughs) over my head. Um, But I was like, yeah, I am tired of hating my body. Like I've, I did, I hated my body. Like it was a job. Like I was getting paid. Yeah. Right. And I was just miserable. I wasn't healthier. I wasn't thinner. I wasn't happier. And so I was like, thanks so much. And they're like, oh, no problem. We can grab your bars on the way out. And I was like, no, I quit. <laughs> I quit. But thank you. But that got me the, to the first part of my journey, which was I figured out, I decided I was going to learn how to love my body at any yeah. size. 
Yeah. Because it was not working out for me to try to manipulate my body size so I could like myself. And I still thought at that time, oh, then I'll lose weight to be healthy. But I was like, I got to decouple these things. Yes. Okay. So it wasn't like you were like, it wasn't like you were fully on the, actually, I'm just totally fine on my own. It's still like, no, no, in the future I'll lose weight. But at the moment, maybe I could try a different tack and not hate myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I had recovered from an eating disorder that occurred between my senior year of high school and freshman year of college. And so I was just, and doctors were still prescribing dieting to me, even knowing that history. So I was just very lucky that I didn't ever have a full relapse. Right. But I was like this, my relationship with my body has been messed up for a long time. So like, let's fix that first. So would you say, and this is like, maybe just even from a little personal experience I have, I don't know about you, but were you like, I was a fat child. Were you fat as a child or or like, was there a constant kind of diet in your life uh, from an early age or did it come in at a later age? I was a bigger kid, but I was also a pretty successful athlete. Oh, wow. And so yeah. I think I didn't get the kind of body shaming that I might have. Right. Um, and then it sort of kicked off. My eating disorder was kicked off by a friend's mom who was, I'm sure she was so well-intentioned, but she said, you know, you're going to lose that extra weight before college, right? Like, you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And that sort of was the the little, that planted the seed that led me down the path to developing a a full-blown eating disorder. Um, But yeah, it was so, dieting didn't start for me as at a super young age, but then it was certainly a big presence for a long time. But you know, as well, like it came to you at quite a vulnerable age because the teen years are just before going to college. I mean, like, I'm sorry, but I think sometimes when adults, I'm like, you have to select your words so carefully with young people in particular, because some, someone could say something to me at this age now, and I'd be like, oh, you're just, you're the problem. <laughs> I got not the problem, you're the problem. But at that age, you really do take it in and internalize it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And can I ask, you know, so I suppose, you know, you were suffering from an eating disorder, and then doctors are still prescribing you like weight loss advice or diets. Do you think, and, and it's something that me and Connor have discussed before, a lot of people in bigger bodies, larger bodies, or just even mid-sized bodies suffer from eating disorders. They're not diagnosed because they are not underweight. And so then... Oh, that is definitely yeah. the case. Yeah. And so would, would you have said that might be the case for you at that point or how, how did you find it? So I, my, the doctors that I saw in general believed that I had had an eating disorder, but they didn't think that that was an impediment to dieting. So I remember a doctor saying, I mean, don't go crazy like you did before, but you're a naturally bigger person. So you're going to have to worry about this for your entire life. And that was like, while I was in treatment for the eating disorder. Um, and so, and I hear when I tell this story, I hear so many other uh, folks in bigger bodies who had very similar experiences. And even now, like there's uh, the diagnosis for a fat person with anorexia is atypical anorexia. And the only thing atypical about it is that they ignored it in fat people for so long. Right. Yeah. And tied it to weight instead of to the behaviors and the biopsychosocial nature of eating disorders. So that's, I mean, it's still a problem. Yeah. A big problem yeah. with the eating disorders community. Wow. I've never even heard of that phrase, atypical um, yeah. anorexia. Um, so I've been looking obviously on your website and, you know, everything like that. In, I, I, before I even go into the amazing work that you do, your workshops and even just your comedy, um, in Ireland, we are still in our infancy. We say this all the time, kind of <laughs> understanding what fat phobia is, body positivity. We're well behind the times. 
What does fat phobia mean to you? To me, fat phobia is when uh, fat people are treated differently inequally because of their size. And so it can, it's a systemic oppression, right? It's not just, it includes things like, you know, street harassment and that kind of thing, but it also includes not being accommodated in chairs, on airplanes, in healthcare facilities, um, all of uh, being hired less in the States, hired less, paid less and promoted less than thin people. There's good research about that. And so it's a system of systemic oppression that uh, privileges thinner bodies and uh, oppresses fatter bodies. And would you like, you know, I'm probably bringing a bit more of my experience into this. When I was younger, when I first was entering the job um, market, you know, getting my first jobs, I was a, I was a bigger person again than I am now. And I just remember thinking, oh, they're never going to hire me. They're, I actually had that. I don't know why. Like, and it's a funny thing because I obviously did get hired. But even that idea was planted in my head that I knew there was even I couldn't put a word to it, fat phobia. I knew there was something going to be held against me. I had it in my mind. Yeah. For fundraising jobs. Um, So you host, right? A monthly, you know this, I don't know why I'm talking, but for the listeners at home, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm just going to tell you what you do, Regan. Um, You host monthly online workshops uh, as well as in-person talks for businesses and universities, um, ranging from, topics of dealing with fat phobia at work and movement in a fat body. What are the aims of your workshops? Like, what do you hope people are going to get out of it? So my workshops tend to be about dealing with weight stigma. And it's, I think it's important to understand fat phobia becomes fat people's problem, even though it's not our fault. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and often what we're told is the solution is to change ourselves, right? Oh, well, if you just... Uh, you know, give your bullies their your lunch money, they'll maybe stop beating you up. And that's not yeah. actually how you solve oppression. And so I try to give people tools to deal with fat phobia while being clear that we're not the problem fat phobia is and that uh, we can't self-love our way out of systemic oppression. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we can teach people and I, and I do, and I think it's important how to understand how to have positive relationships with our bodies, how to appreciate fat bodies. But we also have to realize that we're dealing with systemic oppression and that it's like, we can't fix that by self-love and we shouldn't blame ourselves. Like, oh, I don't love myself enough to, you know, to deal with all of this oppression that I have. And so I try to give people tools and make sure that they're clear that they're not to blame in any of this. And this shouldn't even be happening. Like these workshops, I have this job, like I am so grateful to do it. So it's like a dream job that I wish didn't exist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. Like, it's funny because even when you say, you know, self-love and we're, I mean, it's such a big phrase at the moment, the wellness industry and self-love and body positivity. These are all great phrases, but it's also like to do it, as you said, when you're dealing with systemic oppression of, of fat phobia, it means that it's like your responsibility to to change all right. this stuff. When actually, you know, that means that every day you have to go out and have these ar- maybe arguments or talks with people and like, and like that's exhausting it's exhausting for a person who already is like I just you know already know that these certain things are held against me or that I have to fight every day to even be like no I I think I'm a good I'm fine as I am um (laughs) I think some of the sometimes when you're online it's like oh well I liked that meme of (laughs) self-love so I I can go on with my day and not have to worry about like you know what it's like for bigger people in our society 
Yeah. And I think it's important to understand too, like fat oppression is relative. So I have uh, more privilege than people who are larger than me, but less privilege than people who are smaller than me. Yeah. Even at my size, around 300 pounds. And so that's important. And also for people with multiple marginalized identities, like fat people of color, uh, fat disabled people, fat trans people, and people at the intersections of multiple of those identities, it hits even harder. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so I still have a lot of privilege as a cisgender, currently able-bodied, currently neurotypical white person, right? I still have a lot more privilege and a lot better treatment than a lot of people experience. Exactly. Yeah. And it actually brings me up to um, another topic that I, I found on your page. And I thought, I remember even Chrissy Harrison talking about this, um, about how diet culture is actually stemmed from racism. Mm-hmm. Diet culture is racist. Can you give maybe elaborate on that a bit? And it's just, I suppose, for more education <laughs> for our listeners. Yeah. So uh, what I would recommend actually, so fat phobia stems from racism in many ways. The BMI itself is racist, uh, the body mass index. And what I would recommend is reading Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial okay. Origins of Fat Phobia and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast. Okay. Um, yeah. The politics of anti-fatness as anti-blackness, um, because I don't want to just repeat their yes. work yeah, as a white yeah. person. Oh, I yeah. would, you know, go out and and pay them and buy the books and read them because they're extraordinary and it is incredibly important to understand how racialized fat phobia is and how much more impact fat phobia has on fat black people and fat people of color. Yeah. Do you know what? Two brilliant books that I will immediately go get in my local bookshop. I was about to say Amazon, but no, my local bookshop. Um, <laughs> um, I I saw a quote um, from you recently was uh, used in a USA Today article. And I thought this was such an interesting um so you picked up on it brilliantly. Um, but you were recently quoted, as I said, in USA Today for your blog regarding the upcoming television show, Impeachment, American Crime Story, which, of course, is about the Clinton affair. Um, what is your kind of point of view around the controversy and what exactly is the, you know, the, the topic of discussion about it? So Sarah Paulson, who I am a fan of and who I think is a talented actor, was oh, given the role amazing. of Linda. Tr- yeah, she really amazing. is. Amazing, yeah. She really is. Um, and But she was offered the role of Linda Tripp. And to play that role, she was going to be put in a fat suit. And she accepted the role and she wore the fat suit. And my point of view is that she's very talented. But there are other actors who are just as talented, who are in fact fat, who yeah. will never have the opportunities that she's been given because of fat phobia in the industry. And so we don't need thin people wearing our bodies like a costume and cosplaying fat people. Yeah. We need to hire fat actors. And like, I want a world where fat people are the lead and the yeah. romantic interest and the superhero. But at the very, very absolute least, can we cast fat actors to play roles that require people to be fat like is yeah why is that so difficult yeah because there's so few as you said like there's just so few opportunities out there and then to give the role to someone who is just putting on a suit is like this isn't this is such a a waste of opportunity possibly for someone out there who's been working years putting you know what I mean like and this could have been their big break and it's once again no we all love Sarah Paulson she's great but I think she's even come out and admitted that she looking back mightn't have been the best move on her part either she might have thought twice about it um but as you said like it's it's a funny thing when i even think probably apart from um monique had a 
had definitely a few um, romantic comedies where she was a lead and Queen Latifah. But the only other person that I can think of in my most recent history, unless I'm forgetting, is like Rebel Wilson was the romantic lead. I can't think of any bar those three women. I'm probably I'm missing a few people, but like of like fat women who have been the romantic leads. Yeah, so <laughs> it, well, there you was know Shrill. Um, oh, Shrill, which, the yeah. TV show. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, but yeah, it's... And, you know, even when fat people get those lead roles, it tends to be very much like about their fatness. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, as the main point and often used as a joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember watching uh, the movie Tammy oh, and yes. being like... Yeah. 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 Who again, incredibly talented. Yeah. And I love a lot of her work, but that movie, I was just like, wait, like you had some creative control here and this is what you've arrived at. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. And again, people get to make choices. The fat community is not a monolith. Yeah. Right. And she got to make those choices. But for me personally, it was just a little bit frustrating. Like, this could yeah. have been. Oh my God, so much you know, more. Something I liked yeah, a lot more. Yeah, yeah. I always think as well. I, you know, whenever I see someone who isn't maybe a, a just a, like a thin person in a show, and and the 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 show has nothing to do with their size, I'm still in awe of it. I'm like, yeah. I take note of it because I don't see it. And so I'm like, wow, they just, I almost am like, aren't they great? They didn't mention her size once. And I'm like, why am I thinking they're yeah. right for not mentioning the fact yeah. that she isn't a traditionally thin person? Um, it's like a low bar. My fiance and I play a game where we uh, scream at the TV, fat extra, fat extra. <laughs> Anytime like a fat person even like walks through a scene, like, yeah. oh my God, they have no lines. They We only saw like, half of their body but like there they were they yeah existed. yeah yeah I remember uh one time this is such a sad story to tell but um I was watching the Oscars with my mom uh, when I was very young and uh, I think a producer got up um a definitely an unknown guy anyway got up and he won and he thanked his wife and he, he made this big speech being like, I love my wife and she's just fantastic and the camera went to her and she was a fat woman and I turned to my mom and I said mom that woman's fat and he, she was like, yeah. And then I was like, and he loves her. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, because I had never seen someone on television yeah. declare that they loved a fat woman. And I use, by the way, yeah. fat as a neutral term. You know what I mean? I know. What I mean. Yeah, same like, as Yeah. But it just, I always struck me that I'm like, it's sad that we still are at this. Like that was in the 90s. Yeah. Not age, but like I was a kid that I still think when, I still, when I see a, a either a, any of any gender, you know what I mean, or race or anything, I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. If that person is being loved or cared about on TV, I just think it's yeah. still a shocking. And so, as you said, well, I think that's why your blog was so great, pointing out this is still a shame that Sarah Paulson, you know, got this role. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's like, that's one of the ways that, because the way the weight stigma works is that fat people aren't supposed to be shown in the limelight unless we are self-loathing and trying to lose weight. Yeah. yeah. And it means that we don't get to have or be role models. Like we don't see ourselves in a positive light and it's very hard to develop a good self-concept if the only way you see yourself represented in the media you're consuming is negative. And I mean, now that like social media has really changed that there are slow changes coming. And again, those changes are are more for smaller fat folks and white fat folks and able-bodied fat folks and cisgender fat folks. But um, we're seeing more in like shows 
I got a video. This is funny. Somebody sent me a video and the video said, nobody could believe what happened when this guy hit the dance floor. And I was the competitive ballroom dancer. And the guy's name is John Lindo. And he is one of the most accomplished West Coast swing dancers in the world. Wow. And he's a fat man. And so it was an invitational Jack and Jill where he was invited to compete in this. And, but they rewrote the story to be like the beer delivery guy just like stumbled onto the floor and somehow like had some rhythm. This is a man who studied this craft has become one of the best in the world at it. And still the story has to be rewritten. Like everybody knew what was going to happen when he hit the floor, people show up to watch him dance. He's incredible. But we have to change the narrative to be it's unbelievable yeah. that this man who's fat could possibly have talent. There, there, he's the exception to the rule right. that is <laughs> that um, fat people can't dance or can't be active in any way. Um, I know, yeah, it's, you're completely right. Like the fact that that's actually almost like darkly humorous that like this man is like well known in his profession and then everyone's like can you believe he did this like what are you talking about you're like Simone Biles getting up there and you're like I can't believe she did backflip what are you talking about <laughs> right. I was like that's John Lindo like I, I know that guy he's been a judge of mine like yeah it was so ridiculous and so I wrote back I was like thanks for sharing this but it's actually not shocking yeah at all like yeah Um, I suppose that brings me on to your, I mean, a marathon runner. I, now, I don't know if you are training for the, it mentioned it on your site that you were like, did you, have you done an Ironman? Are you training for an Ironman or how's that going? So it's going terribly. It's been a debacle <laughs> from the beginning. So I'm a marathon walker. I've done a couple marathons and I got the Guinness World Record for heaviest woman to complete a marathon. Oh, so yay. Sorry, just um, going to applaud here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, like, I always want to be really clear. Like, this is, I like to do ridiculous things like yeah. this, but fitness is not an obligation. It's not a barometer of worthiness. It's not morality. Right. So I've done them both completing a marathon, having a Netflix marathon. These are morally equivalent activities, (laughs) right? If you'd rather knit it, they're both as difficult and mentally trying. (laughs) Seriously. If you'd rather knit a tea cozy than like do a marathon, I a hundred percent support you in that. Go nuts. Um, but yeah, so, so I decided I wanted to try cause it was, it became a project of pushing. I always played sports, but only things I was good at right away. And I'm a fast twitch athlete, right? Explosive movement, working hard for a short amount of time. That's my gig. Uh, Endurance stuff was not my deal. And I hurt my neck. And that's how I ended up doing the first one was that they said walking was all I could do. I was just like, well, I'm going to have to come up with some kind of goal or I'm definitely not going on these walks. Like, I'm just not a person who like, I'm going to take a walk. And my best friend, I emailed him and was like, will you do a marathon with me? And he emailed back immediately and said, I'm in because he's my best friend and he's awesome. Kelrick. But yeah, so I decided that the, the Iron Distance Triathlon is sort of the biggest expression of this pushing outside of my comfort zone because I get to suck at three sports over a pretty big distance in time. <laughs> and it was a two-year plan to do it. And I think I'm in like my seventh or eighth year, not counting the corona year that I lost, <laughs> right? Of trying you to don't do this thing. count that year, yeah. And everything I got injured family and friends were in the hospital. Like I, and the distances are something I can do, but the time limits are what is a real struggle for me. I am glacially slow. Yeah. Right. And with the marathon, that's fine. I picked marathons that didn't have a time limit and it's a distance, right? 26.2 miles to get to the end. And so I decided finally, like I, it's so expensive to keep registering for these Ironmans and then having to (laughs) drop out because of random ridiculous things. So I decided that I'm going to train for the distance. I'm going to stage my own little personal iron distance triathlon unbranded because that was my goal. When I started was I want to do this 140.6 and I want to model for people like, you know, you can try things and fail. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I, yeah. I tried to do it. I, you know, it's just not working out. And maybe if I just kept training and kept training, I could get there, but I don't want to dedicate that. I'm, I really want to be done with this. I can't stress enough how much I want to cross the finish line, get the medal and freaking never do. I'm never running again. I don't care if something scary is chasing me. I'm going to be like, look, I kill you, you kill me, but it's happening here. Like we're not running you're anywhere. Like, can, we, can we come to a deal and just do a fast walk together where you're chasing me? <laughs> right. What, what can we work out here? Because I'm done with this never again. And people are like, no, you're going to get bit by the bug. I'm like, I squashed that bug. Like that bug is yeah, long dead. Yeah, I'm just yeah. trying now. But yeah. I, you know, and I could, it, there would be no shame if I was like, look, this didn't work out and I hate it. So I'm going to quit. There's no shame in quitting. And I really want people to know that, like try stuff. And if you don't, like, this isn't junior high softball anymore where you're like, well, you join the team. So you have to finish the season. Like, nah, if you don't, if you want to try something, you don't like it, you can quit. And there's yeah. no shame. I want to finish this for my own personal edification and because I am someone who makes bad choices. And so like, that's where I'm at with it right now. You say you make bad choices, but by my (laughs) intro, I'm going to say you're a liar. (laughs) I get bored and do stuff, but like some of these are real questions. Like, I don't know if I should get, you know, cheered or some kind of sort of firm talking to about this idea. But I think, you know, your attitude towards even the exercise, I think is is a very almost intuitive kind of like healthy one in a sense, because I think we're all in this, you know, wellness stage of, as I mentioned before, but the fitness part of it is like this whole thing of like, you know, never give up, never surrender. It's all for your mental health and push, push, push. But I always think, but there's also a part of it is like, this is that's a one size fits all approach to fitness that is not serving it's not serving everyone's mental health it's not serving every different type of body for sure and like we're all very different creatures so actually it's all about finding what you enjoy so this weird thing of like it has to be hit sessions or it has to be heavyweight lifting or it has to be running Connor made a great point where he said you know what if I never do a squat again I'll die die a happy man (laughs) And he goes, I love going for walks. So I go for walks and that's it. And I'm happy out. And like, whatever you're into, whether it's like, it doesn't even have to be a walk, whatever you enjoy, just do it. It's, I think your attitude towards being like, yeah, I want this for myself, but like, by that, I'm not doing it again. I think is a great way of approaching. No, no, I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to find a sport that's inside an air conditioned, as comfortable clothes. (laughs) But I think it's really important, like, there are lots of reasons people do movement. Some people do yeah. movement because they enjoy it. Some people do it because there's some kind of physical and mental health benefit for them. Mm-hmm. And so it's so if you if that's where you're at, right? No, again, nobody's obligated to participate in fitness. Yeah. And you know, statistically, there are some health benefits, but it's not the only thing that has health benefits. Like yeah. statistically, having greater social connections has incredible health benefits too. Like you yeah. don't have to do it. And if you do, you can do it completely on your own terms. Yeah. So you can be like, you know, it helps to manage my, you know, this chronic condition that I have. So I do it, but I do as little as I need to. And I just try to find something I hate the least. Yes, That's a yes, reasonable yeah. attitude around fitness. And Definitely. I think too often we either tell people it has to be miserable or then sometimes we go too far on the other side and say, oh, it has to be joyful. And there are people yeah. for whom movement is not joyful, but it is for them beneficial. Right. Yeah. And like so mobility I think and things like that. Yeah. 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 So it becomes too much pressure. Like, 
I don't enjoy this, but like, I'm going to knock it out. And that's also okay. You know? So it's, I, my thing is nobody's obligated to participate in fitness, but everybody should be welcome. And so when I do work around fitness activism, that's my goal is like, let's bring down barriers to participation and then let people make their own decisions. God, that's such a great phrase. Um, oh, sorry, can you refer? It's not everyone is um, obligated to participate, but everyone should be welcome. I think that's so true of a phrase. And unfortunately, I found in some fitness spaces, I ha- not that me, me myself hasn't felt welcome, but it wouldn't be an atmosphere of a place that I'd be like, oh, I can't wait to come back here and be surrounded yeah. by <laughs> men screaming and dropping barbells. <laughs> but uh, so... This brings me on nicely to our next question. (laughs) You are a body positive fitness instructor. What exactly kind of obviously does that mean? But why do you think being a body positive fitness instructor is probably meeting part of a market that isn't there at the moment with maybe the standard uh, fitness instructors? instructors? Yeah, so I got my first fitness certification in 1996. Um, I was... 18, I went to an Apex convention and I'm pretty sure of the hundreds of people there, I was the only fat person I saw. Right. Um, and so at the time I was in within my eating disorder and still trying to lose weight. And I became a fitness instructor as a cover to my behavior because it makes sense yeah. to be at the gym for the hours I was, if you are a fitness instructor. Um, and then over time, you know, as my views have changed, so has my approach to um working in fitness. And I do, uh, I still teach like dance classes and some fitness classes, but mostly now I work with other instructors to teach weight inclusive fitness. Nice. Um, and I think it's really important because the fitness industry, uh, drives the idea that we should lose weight and then uses the fact that people want to lose weight to justify continuing to give these ideas that are not based in evidence around weight loss, right? What we okay. know is no matter what people try to do about 95% of people will end up gaining their weight back. Yeah. And you know, uh, up to 66% will gain back more than they lost. And that's, we've known that since 1959 and it's been reproven over and over again, but the fitness industry is still promising something they can't deliver. Yes. Yeah. And so fitness instructors will say, Oh, but that's what my clients want. And I'm like, well, your clients would probably like to fly too, but that doesn't justify <laughs> telling them to jump off their garage and flap yeah. their arms super hard. Right. So I think it's important that we understand that what we do is we set people up for failure mm-hmm. and then they blame themselves because that's how the weight loss industry oh, works. Yeah. yeah. Right. They know that these are two parts of the same biological response, the short-term yeah. weight loss and then the long-term weight gain. And they take the credit for the first part of the biological response and then blame their clients and get their clients oh, yeah. to blame themselves for the yeah. second part. And so people, you know, in terms of fitness, they might be getting plenty of benefits from it. They might enjoy it and, or they might be getting health benefits, mm. uh, physical or mental, you know, they might be feeling achievement, etc. But if they're told that they'll lose weight and they don't, then they're going to tend to think it's yes. not working. Yeah. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Where you can be feeling everything. You can be feeling all the benefits and going, God, I, I have more energy, all this amazing stuff. But if the scales aren't moving, I'm I'm a failure. I'm a failure. Yeah. 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 And I want to say, I think a lot of fitness pros aren't doing this maliciously. It's still oh, in the yeah. training pros. I, when I did my CEUs last year, um, I recertified as a group fitness instructor. And so when I first got certified in 96, they gave us a formula for weight loss. And they were like, if your client says they're doing this and they're not losing weight, then they are lying. I'm quoting here, gently confront them. (laughs) And that was and is 
terrible advice and absolutely wrong. But now the the chapter on uh, weight loss just sort of vaguely mentioned calorie deficits. Yeah. And the study that they used to try to prove that long-term weight loss was possible was less than a year long. And I'm like, come on, yeah. like, stop. At and this then stage, it, the weight loss industry is so backdated. You'd think we'd yeah. have... We'd have, oh, well, this is how you get a 40-year. Like, if, if if there was any way of doing it, you'd think they'd be like, yeah. oh, well, if you want a 40-year weight loss, here you go. Here's the formula. Because we would have figured it out by now, right? I mean, right. yeah. Instead of like 70% of the people dropped out of this study and the remaining people lost five pounds in two years, right? Yeah. Which is an amount of weight I could lose right now with a loofah and a haircut. I don't need two years of any intervention to make yeah. that happen. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah, yeah it's ridiculous. So I think it's really important because you'll, you know... I was on a, a panel at the CampFit Pro Conference and uh, there's a, their head of training was talking about how 80% of people say they want to lose weight. And he's like, but we have to ask ourselves, how much of that is, are we driving? Yes. He's like, when we yeah. ask people for goals and they're like, I don't know what goals are we like, well, what about weight loss? And like, that is, you know, how yeah. much of that is the industry driving and then using that to justify. Yeah continuing to promise something that they absolutely have no reason to believe they can deliver. Yeah. And I mean, as well, to your point, how much are we driving? I mean, and I and I don't mean this as I don't think, as you said, that many fitness instructors are malicious in this way, but many of them are still using before and after photos. So, oh gosh. you know, I just saw um, a person I really admire, actually, um, who would be like quite a body positive person sharing her personal trainer who she obviously really likes but he was using before and after photos transformation six weeks transformation and once again I always say like what's the transformation do you want like a second arse but <laughs> like what are we transforming <laughs> evolution transforms your body um, but <laughs> you know you make such a good point it's like the chicken and the egg where do we get this idea of weight loss if it's not sometimes um, the industry that gives it to us Um uh, one more question before we go, because, I, I, you know, I, I, you've given us so much of your time. And Reagan, I feel like I could actually talk to you all day about this. Um, you do, You also host a workshop. Uh, it really caught my eye when, when you brought this, uh, the title of the workshop, Dealing with Fat Phobia at the Doctor's Office. What issues do you think, you know, fat people, larger people face when they're going in to deal with a doctor? Yeah, this is an interesting one because I teach general audiences how to deal with that phobia at the doctor's office. Mm. But then I also teach doctors wow. and other healthcare practitioners how yeah. to best care for fat patients. Okay. Um, and so I get to see kind of both sides of it. Yeah. And what has happened within healthcare is that there has become such a myopic focus on weight loss mm. that almost everything else is ignored. So not yeah. only is weight loss, as we talked about, not, it doesn't meet the requirements of ethical evidence-based medicine, mm -hmm. but even if it did, if I have, you know, a sprained ankle or a severed arm, I'm going to need treatment for that now, yeah. not a diet. And like, I've personally been prescribed diets for strep throat, a broken toe and a separated shoulder, right? None of which weight loss was going to help. Yeah. yeah. Even if you believe that weight loss was possible and that it would actually affect change. And like the... I got into this actually through the research. My background is research methods and statistical analysis. Yeah. So since we don't have another hour and a half, I won't go into that big piece <laughs> of it. People can find stuff on my blog. But when I talk to, to people who are dealing with medical fat phobia, um, I teach... Once again, this isn't our fault, even though it becomes our problem. Like You shouldn't have to study yes. up for a doctor's appointment. Um, and, and tools like uh, you know asking, what would you do for a thin person with these same symptoms? Yes. And let's try that. Right. Yes. And I co-authored with um, Dr. Louise Metz and Tiana Dodson, the Hayes Health Sheets. 
which are diagnosis-specific practice guides um, for practitioners and patients and advocates. You can look, you can like download the one for say type two diabetes, and it will explain what weight neutral care looks like. Yeah, and and just uh, for anyone who doesn't understand what haze is, um, that's health at every size, the health at every yes. size movement. Sorry, just in case there was anyone who, who yeah, didn't no. know what that acronym was. Um, that's amazing. And and how do you find the reaction from doctors is to your workshops? Um, a lot of times it it's it can start off quite hostile. And the right. first question I'm always going to be asked is, "Where did you go to medical school?" Oh. And my answer is, you know, every time it's almost guaranteed. And my answer is I didn't go to, if I went to medical school, I would probably still be buying into these same systems and yes. making these same mistakes that you are. Yeah. Like, because I went outside of that system and to do my own literature review, mm-hmm. I was able to see what was happening rather than being part of what was happening and, you know, being entrenched in that system. Um, but I've really, you know, there are more and more health at every size and weight inclusive yeah. doctors um, and I'm getting more and more, I'm giving a, a talk in November to a huge healthcare company here in the U S to several hundred of their practitioners and leadership. And wow. I never thought that this company would hire me ever, wow. ever. So like, that's really cool. So I'm seeing more and more practitioners who are like, let's take a look at the evidence. One of my favorite emails I ever got was from a doctor. And she said, six months ago, I started hate reading your blog. Um, and I was like, okay. And she said, but, um, in the the last six months I have read what she said, I've done my own research and I've now moved to a fully health at every size weight inclusive practice. Oh, that is amazing to hear. That must be amazing for you. Like really all the work you've put in. I mean, I just feel really, you know, there's a lot of luck and privilege that goes into being able to do what I do, Mm -hmm. but it just, you know, when you, here in the States, they estimate that the average doctor will see between 1,200 and 4,000 patients in their career. Mm-hmm. So like the opportunity to impact the treatment of that many people, yeah. I just feel so lucky to be able to to do that work. And I feel really glad that that doctor was able to open their mind, even though they started hate reading. Yeah, I, um, I, I find it very interesting when someone starts to hate read something. I'm like, you are a doctor. You're very busy. <laughs> I know. I don't have time to read stuff I like. Yeah, I don't understand why. Like my trolls, I'm like, please, for heaven's sake, go find someone whose work you like. I know. Read definitely. that with this kind of vigor. Definitely. Well, I mean, that's amazing that you're ta- speaking at that convention. I do think it's a, it's work that needs um, definitely to be done, I, I myself had a very bad experience with a doctor only a few years ago and I didn't speak up at the time and I really wish that I had. And it's something that yeah. it's not because because I am very secure in my body now, but that's after once again learning from, you know, amazing activists like yourself online and and reading up on it. And, and you know, Christy Harrison's book was also huge to me, but it's more that this doctor could, could speak to a, a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old and say something like that. And it doesn't matter, like any, you know, any person and they could not be at a stage where I'm at and it would have affected them. And it did affect me, but it could affect them even more and move them down a path to an eating disorder or further mm-hmm. along their eating disorder. Um, so the work you're doing, I just think is amazing. <laughs> amazing. Thanks. I, I'm, I, like I said, I feel really lucky to be able to do it. And yeah, it's, you know, it can create an eating disorder, it can miss a diagnosis. Ellen Maude Bennett went to nine doctors 
And they all told her to lose weight. And that's why her cancer wasn't discovered until it was too late. And in her obituary, she said that she wanted plus size women to take charge of their healthcare and insist on care. And that's tragic. That should never happen. And it happens too often. So yeah, it's healthcare is a weight stigma in healthcare is such a huge issue. So again, I just feel really lucky to be able to do what I do. As uh, Christy Harrison said, what did she say? Um, uh, Correlation does not mean causation. Yes. Um, My first research methods teacher made us repeat that at the beginning and end of every class the first semester. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you'll say it in your sleep. You probably say it like when you're... (laughs) Seriously. Well, listen, Reagan, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for our listeners, you can find Reagan on Instagram at Reagan Chastain, on Twitter at Dance With Fat, and of course, her website, dancewithfat.org. Did I get that right? Exactly right. Oh, brilliant. Um, thank you again. You're just fantastic. Oh, thank you. I love this podcast. I'm so lucky to be on it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Fad Camp. As always, we want to thank our producer, Darren Lee. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Great ratings and reviews really help more people find the show, and it would mean a lot to us. Make sure to share the episodes with friends and family or on your social media. Every listen helps. And we absolutely love hearing from our listeners. So please get in touch with any of your diet stories on fadcamppodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.